We're taking a break from First Peter, and for the month of December, going through Christmas in Isaiah. There we go. Christmas in Isaiah. If it comes up, if it doesn't, it's okay. We're going to do it the old-fashioned way. Looks like it's the old-fashioned way. Oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. Okay. Well, how many of you have put up your Christmas tree already? Has everyone done that? So some of you uh, have fake ones. How many fake ones do we have out there? Okay. How many real ones? Ooh, not many real ones. Oh, that's kind of sad. <laughs> we are a real Christmas tree family. Amen. There you go. Thank you back there. It's estimated that over 30 million Christmas trees will be sold at this Christmas season. So, in America, that is. I don't know about across the world, but have you ever wondered where the tradition of the Christmas tree came from? It's kind of, a, I was thinking about it this past week. I was thinking it's kind of an odd one. Right, we cut down a, a tree, a highly combustible one at that, put it in our homes, put lights on it, electrical lights. At one time, they actually put like real candles on there to light them up. That's scary. And we put, you know, these bulbs, glass bulbs on them. And usually you start when they're little kids, right? And these kids pack it, pick up the glass bulbs and you try to get them not to drop it. But usually every year, a couple drop and you try to... Keep your composure, and hopefully it's not the one that was the precious one from your grandma, you know. But where did that come from? How do we, why do we celebrate Christmas with that tree? Well, there's a lot of theories out there on the origins, but they're probably the most common and actually most certain one. It comes, it comes from Germany in the 15th century. In 1419, it's recorded that there were um, these paradise plays that they would do in Germany, and in order to communicate the gospel message and different stories, there'd be different times where churches would put on and villages would put on these Christmas, or not Christmas, these paradise plays or Bible plays. And so most people back then were illiterate. Plus you didn't have a lot of publications taking place, right? No Gutenberg, no printing press at the time. So in order to communicate these gospel stories to people, they would do these plays. And so they did one on Christmas Eve each year, and it was the story of Adam and Eve. And they put up a tree, uh, usually an evergreen tree or something like that, for the to represent the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Also, it's assumed they probably did the same thing for the tree of life. And they would tie onto that with string these apples all over it, you know. So that's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did this little play. And so the German tradition started where people would put in these evergreen trees up in their homes for Christmas Eve. And then they would tie apples and fruits and nuts and other things on it. And then Christmas Day, they would enjoy that stuff. And so when the German immigrants came over to America, which some of you are immigrants of German, German ancestry, um, they brought that over and they brought that tradition with them as well. And now we do that tradition across America. And if you go to Germany, they know how to do it right over there. They have some amazing Christmas celebrations over there. Today, we're, we're going to talk about the Christmas tree Christmas tree of the scriptures. And we're, ta we're not talking about a family tree. Or I'm sorry, we're not talking about an evergreen tree. We're talking about a family tree. It's the ancestry of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I've titled my sermon, The Hope of a Christmas Tree. Now don't, don't picture like this, oh, that little evergreen tree right there. Don't picture a tree like that. 
I want you to picture a family tree, and it's the family tree of Jesus Christ. And I'm calling it a Christmas tree because actually the Bible is, describes Jesus as a sprout, as a sapling that came forth, and he sprouted actually a new tree. And so Christmas Day really is that day when this Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born, and that, that new tree started to grow and blossom. And from there, we have the tree of the family of the Messiah, of Christ. And so we're going to talk about this Christmas tree and how we have hope because of that. We're going to look at um, our text. Main text is going to be Isaiah chapter 4. We're also going to look at Isaiah chapter 11. And for the next four weeks, we're going to, like I said, we're going to look at different passages. You can look at your bulletin there. And what I think would be kind of fun is maybe go through those different texts and see where you can find the different themes in those, those passages. Try to find that. Next week, we're going to talk about Christmas coal. So you can look for that there in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. But today we're took, looking at the hope of the Christmas tree, which is the hope of an ancestral tree that uh, a Messiah would come up from the line of David and would reign as king, would reign as king. So look at Isaiah chapter 4, and we're actually going to start in verse 2. This is a poem in Jewish literature, and so we're going to start in verse 2 and go down to verse 6. Isaiah 4.2, this is the word of the Lord. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion remains and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. And the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and, a shining, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. And there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word here, we ask that you will help us to understand it. It can be somewhat confusing just reading through it. So I pray that you'll give us the understanding the, the faith to believe what your word says, and then may our hopes rest in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I really want to focus on the idea of hope the next couple weeks. A world really needs hope, doesn't it? Hope, I, but I hope I don't mean that it's something that we're wishing for. Sometimes we use it that way in our American society. It's not that I'm hoping for a certain Christmas present, although some of you out there, some of you kids are hoping for certain Christmas presents, right? But you're thinking of it more of like a wish. Biblical hope here is a confidence that God will do what he says. It's a confident expectation that God will do what he promises. So we hope in the return of Christ so that means we believe it will happen. We're expecting it to happen. We hope in his forgiveness. In other words, we believe that we are forgiven. We, we know it's true. We hope in God's providence. We believe that his plans for us are better for us in the future. His plans for us are best now and better 
to come. And so we have a confidence in that. And so our our text here is giving us hope. It's giving the Jewish people hope. It's a confident expectation that, that God will do what he says. Our world needs hope, but really for us as Christians, though we have the hope, we need to be reminded of it sometimes, don't we? So that's what I'm hoping to do here this morning. Probably not using that word correctly again. <laughs> that's what I'm desiring to do this morning, to give us a hope in the Lord. In our text today, Isaiah gives the, the people of Judah hope. Hope that even though judgment will come, and even though there will be annihilation and destruction, God has a future for this country. God has a king who will once again sit on the throne. Now, if you read through the book of Isaiah, it's going to take you a little while, but it'd be a good thing to do. But there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and it's actually very similar to how you might lay out the Bible, right? There's 39 chapters um, in the Old Testament, and in this book here, there's 39 chapters. And this really, the first 39 are chapters that warn Judah and Jerusalem of judgment to come. Then the last 27 were really written for the exiles in Babylon to give them hope that there's going to be a restored, a restored Jerusalem, a restored future Israel. Now this time for Isaiah, he was writing uh, to the Jewish people in Judah, and there was a divided kingdom. So remember, Israel was to the north, and Judah, the country of Judah, was to the south. Israel was the first to, to face destruction to face judgment from the hand of the Lord, and he did it at the hand of the Assyrians in 720 BC. Later on, Judah and the capital of Jerusalem eventually fell to the Babylonians. So you remember that? That's, that's the context here. That's the story of the history of what's going on here. But really, Isaiah was focusing more on Jerusalem and Judea there and, and speaking to them. And you can read really the indictment that God has against Judah. Judgment is about to come. It's soon. There's a couple years away. God will bring judgment for sin. In fact, look back to Isaiah chapter 1 and notice the indictment that God has against his people for their sin. Isaiah 1.1, 1, 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, Amaz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Now, those are important names. I want you to lock those names in your mind there. That's the, the, the tree, the, the royal tree of the family of David, of the kingly line of David there. And those are the kings that he also, um, he ministered during the lives of those kings. And then look down in verse 3. The Bible says, verse 3, O sinful nation. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. And so he lays out, here's the problem that they have. They have sinned against God. They sinned against the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And so he speaks to them as, his, as the children of God who have rebelled against the Lord. And what are they guilty of? Well, he says they have sinned against the Holy One. We're going to see that word holy. If you read through the book of Isaiah, you're going to see it throughout the book of Isaiah. They sinned against the Holy One, the Lord Yahweh. And when I speak of the Lord and Yahweh, I'm really, that's the same uh, words there. Just uh, sometimes people use the word Jehovah also. 
The Lord then goes on in this text to compare Israel with probably the worst comparison that he could give them, and that is he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, look down in verses 9 and 10. You can see that. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah were those wicked cities in Genesis. I mean, who are the, the worst people in the Old Testament that you could compare Israel to? Well, that were judged. That is Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what happened to them? Completely annihilated, right? And he's saying, basically, you're going to be like them. Now, if you're living in sin and God promises judgment and it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, that should be pretty scary to you. And actually, it's going to be the, the very similar thing is going to happen to them, except the only difference is God would allow some survivors to uh, survive the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. He says, If the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, they, the same judgment, the same type of judgment happened to both cities, but for Jerusalem, they were allowed survivors. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So now he calls them the rulers of, of Jerusalem, the, the kings of Jerusalem. He calls them the rulers of Sodom, calls them a name. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now he calls the Jewish people living in Jerusalem the people of Gomorrah. So he's indicting them with the, the sinful name, or the, with the sins of those people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God promised judgment, but it wasn't coming because they weren't religious. Why was judgment coming upon them? Was it because they, had, they weren't religious anymore? They weren't making sacrifices? No, they were doing that still. They brought their lambs. They brought their goats. They, they had them sacrificed, but they did so with hearts that were full of sinful passion. They did so with hearts that were, were full of hypocrisy. They, they sacrificed their, 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 their offerings before false gods, and God had enough of it. And he promised them all the way back in Deuteronomy, he promised that if you reject me, I will reject you and send you into exile. And to make that picture clear to them, God uses an illustration here. He, he describes Judah and Jerusalem as a lush forest in a fruitful vineyard. Now, how many of you have ever been to Napa Valley? Anyone been up, been there? I've never been there, but I saw some pictures online. And isn't, isn't that beautiful right there? Now, according to Google, when I, or actually DuckDuckGo, wrong one, and I typed that in there, that one right there said that that was Napa Valley. So that looks pretty amazing. I'm assuming that's a real picture. But from the descriptions that I've heard, read, and people have told me, I've talked to one person about it, that this is a, there are some parts that are very beautiful. You get these rolling hills. I think there's over 400 vineries. Vineries, is that what you call them? Vineries? There you go. There they have gardens and what are they called? Vineyards. Vineries? Yeah, vineyards. That's what it's called. Vineyards. Anyways. And, you know, if you lived in an agricultural society, this kind of area would be like, we would consider very wealthy. When you, when you have vineyards, there we go, and you have gardens, and when you have forests, you have trees, thick, sturdy trees. It's a sign of, of wealth. It's a sign of 
prosperity. And that was really the picture of Jerusalem. They were very wealthy. God had provided much for them. And the picture he's going to give here, really in the first five chapters, is that God's going to come and he's going to cut it all down. It's going to dry up with a famine, and then he's going to cut it down, then he's going to burn it. And he's not just talking about the physical city of Jerusalem, though he is talking about the physical city of Jerusalem. He's not just talking about the hills surrounding it, although he's talking about that. He's talking about the people. The people are like these these vineyards. The people are like these trees, and God is going to cut them down in judgment. In fact, look down. Oh, I was going to say this. Yeah. Sorry, let me finish my illustration. I I, I, I don't know how many of you followed some of those uh, fires that you saw that happened. I think some of them happened in Napa Valley. Some of them happened in some other places too. But I pulled a picture up here. And just think of the destruction that came through that valley with those fires and how it just annihilated them. That's the picture God wants here. They, he wants them to think of the picture of the, the, all their prosperity being burned away and the people being cut down. So look down in, in verse 28. You can see this illustration here. He says in verse 28, But rebels and sinners, speaking of the people of Jerusalem, shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Verse 29. This is, and we're in in chapter 1 still. Uh, Verse 29. uh, Verse 29. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. You shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. So he's describing the the, uh, richness of Jerusalem and the, the oaks and the gardens there. In verse 30, he says, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, the garden without water. So there's this drought. Everything dries up. And he's saying, not just the area around, but actually you are going to be dried up. And he's talking about spiritually they're dried up. In verse 31, and the strong shall become tender, his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. And we could go through text after text through the first four or five chapters. In fact, in chapter five, he gives actually kind of a parable of a vineyard and being burned up and God being the, the one who does that. In fact, look down in chapter three, verse 13. This is kind of the last place I'm going to take you before we go to our text here for this morning. Three thirteen says, the Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. And now he's going to enter into judgment upon them and he's going to cut down their vineyard. The prophecy that God gives here in Isaiah was fulfilled with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. For almost two years, King Nebuchadnezzar came against the city of Jerusalem and there was famine there was food that was gone. The place was literally dried up. The people were drying up, were dying. In fact, there's even reports of cannibalism that took place within the city because people were so hungry and so desperate. And eventually the city fell. And when King Nebuchadnezzar came in, he knocked down the walls. He t- tore down the temple. He burned everything. Mass genocide killed almost everyone. And only a few people remained. And that was God's judgment upon those people. And I'm just going to say, that was an actual historical fact that that happened, right? And this was prophesied by Isaiah. Now, I want you to think, this is, this is written to them before this actually happened. You're a, a believer in the Lord Yahweh. You're the believer in the Lord in Jerusalem. You read what Isaiah says here, and you think, this is going to happen to us. How does that affect you? 
right? You, you look around your city, you see the vineyards, you see the, the people, and God is promising, I'm going to wipe all of this off the map. How does that affect you? I mean, it seems like a pretty hopeless situation. So what is God doing here in Isaiah? I mean, if you read through these prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets, do you get depressed a little bit? I don't know about you, but sometimes it's, I do. It's like judgment, 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 you know? And you're like, whoa, what's the Lord trying to do? Does he want to spread hopelessness? Doesn't seem like the greatest Christmas message so far, does it? <laughs> is, that, is that the goal of the Lord in this text? And obviously the answer is no. What he wants to do is he wants to spread truth. He wants to spread reality. And what's the truth? The truth is sin brings pain. Sin brings judgment from God. And the reality is that God is patient. Just because God has not judged your sin or he has not caused judgment to come upon you now for your sin does not mean he doesn't care about your sin. The reality is God is patient with us, but he won't be patient much longer. When I think about what happened in this area, in Jerusalem, in that city, in that country at that time, the prosperity they had, the condemnation of God for their sin, the judgment that was to come, I can't help, honestly, but think about our country, right? When you think about our country, we live better than any king could have hoped to 3,000 years ago, right? I mean, think about those kings, they were living in luxury, but nothing compared to probably, frankly, one of the poorest people that live in America, right? We live in amazing luxury. God has given us so much, not just physically, but he's given us amazing country to live in, the freedoms that we have, right? I mean, think about it. We have so many wonderful good things. And what does that do to our heart? God has been so kind to us. Does that mercy and kindness of God cause us to turn back to him? Does it cause us to say, thank you, Lord. We're gonna, we're gonna repent before you and, and trust in your son, Jesus Christ. And it seems like the more we get, the more we love those things, the more we sin and reject God, doesn't it? And I think the thing that's, that should be eye-opening to us, that should wake us up, is that God is patient, but only for so long. And as we look at our country, what do we see happening in our country? And really, we're seeing things coming to a close. If our, unless our country, unless our country repents and turns to Christ the demise of Judah will be our demise as well. So the goal that God has here for Israel, for Judah, that is, is for them to turn and repent to him. But sometimes, sometimes, in order for people to turn and repent, they have to experience pain. I was reading in a biography of D.L. Moody, an account when he was ministering to some men in the Civil War. He was down in Kentucky after one of the battles, and he was not really an official chaplain, but he would, when he was younger, in his 20s, he would go down there and minister to, to men and give them the gospel, really. He was a gospel man. And so he went to this infirmary, and there was a bunch of men who were laying there dying, and one particular man was groaning loudly. And, and so someone brought him over, D.L. Moody, over to this, this man who was dying, and D.L. Moody knelt down next to this man, and, and pretty much in the Civil War, if you got wounded, you pretty much died, right? It was just a matter of time. And this man was probably going to die in the next couple of hours. And so the, the, the nurse in there told the Dale Moody that he's going to die pretty soon. This man knew he was going to die. And so he knelt down next to him and he 
and he held the man's hand. The man just was so afraid. This man was so stressed. He had so much anxiety. And so D.L. Moody was going to give him the gospel and give him the hope of Christ. And so he held this man, man's hand and he said, you know, sir, if I, could, if I could carry you into the arms of Jesus myself, I would. But I can't. Only Jesus can. So he began to tell him the gospel. And this man listened, but he kept clearly resisting in his heart. And at one point, he stopped Deal Moody and says, you know, Mr. Moody, I am too much of a sinner. I've done too many things. This man was only 21 years old, okay? This young man, sometimes we think of these soldiers as older. These guys, this guy's 21 years old. He's like, I've done so much. God cannot never forgive me. And here's a man who is feeling the condemnation from the Lord. It's actually a good thing to feel that condemnation, but it's also good to see the hope. And so Deal Moody, he opened to uh, John chapter 3, and he told him the story of Nicodemus. And he just read through the story of Nicodemus there. And he got to verses 14 and 15, which says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And at that moment, that man asked Deal Moody to stop. He said, stop. He said, read that again. And Deal Moody read it again. He said, read it again. And over and over, D.L. Moody read that as Moses, was lifted, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. And this man began then to whisper that to himself, and he closed his eyes. And D.L. Moody he said he, listened, he, he leaned in and listened in to what this man was saying. This man was repeating that over and over. And he was putting those promises in his mind, that promise in his mind that if he believed he could have eternal life, what this man was doing was he was holding on to hope. And his stress, his anxiety, his fear went away. And D.L. Moody said it was clear that the peace of God came upon this man. And this man trusted in Jesus Christ for his hope. Pain has a way of waking you up to reality. This 21-year-old soldier was wounded and that pain caused him to look for hope, for, to look for hope. Sometimes we experience pain or maybe even um, the death of a loved one and it makes us ask some really hard questions. I think they're really good questions, but questions like, what is my life actually about? Where am I going when I die? What really matters in this world? I think one of the things that's kind of crazy is to sometimes you watch the news and read the news and, and you, you see people who are, are dying or, or reports of people who died and, and people insert politics into it. And you're kind of like, I don't think when they die, they're going to really care about what the politics of everything. Like life's not about politics. I think that's one of the sad things. You see that kind of thing. And it's like, what really matters? And when you have death and you have pain, it actually causes you to wake up and say, What's the reality actually beyond death? C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pains. And pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so what the Lord is doing here in Isaiah, he's saying pain's coming pretty soon, and that will be a megaphone that will call you to return and repent of your sins. And so... We go to Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Judgment's coming, and he gives them hope. The hope of a Messiah. Look in verse, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. He says, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be glorious, beautiful, and glorious. The branch of the Lord was really 
an offer of hope to the Jewish people. Remember the imagery of a vineyard and trees? They're cut down, they're burned. So that's the picture of God's judgment. But what he's saying here is there's going to be total annihilation, but something's going to spring up. There's going to be this branch that's going to come up and it's going to offer hope for you. Now, when you, when you read something like Isaiah 1, 2, and 3, and you see all this devastation, all this destruction, the question might be, are there going to be any survivors? You know, is there going to be ever a Jewish kingdom again? Is there ever going to be a Jewish king again? So God here offers hope. Yes, there's going to be a, a few survivors. You can see that in verse 2 there. He says at the very end, there's survivors of Israel. So there's going to be some survivors, but there's going to be a very special survivor, and he's called the branch of the Lord. The Hebrew word branch means sprout or, or shoot, something that grows up. I put a little picture up there to kind of give you that picture. Something that was once dead, and out of that comes something that, that comes to life. Some kind, of, some kind of plant grows up out of that. So this is a promise of, a, of the hope of an ancestor who will sprout up a new family tree. And who is this person? Well, he's, he's the promised king that is of divine and of human ancestry. And he is a king. Now, when you look at the word branch, you might not see that. You mean like, what, how does that? Well, the Jewish people would have understood this as a kingly office. In fact, let me just read a scripture for you. You can study this later if you'd like to. But Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. So when they heard this idea of a branch or this, this family tree, they, they, uh, they thought of the idea of a kingly office, a king that was to be born. In fact, if you look at Isaiah 4, 2, you can see he's describing a king. He says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Now, when you see the word beautiful there, don't think of the English word beautiful, how we use the word beautiful. You know, when I saw my wife this morning, I said, I already knew I was going to preach this, so that's why I said it, plus I believe it. I said, you look beautiful. Okay, when, when I say that, what I'm saying is that your, your um, externals are pleasing to my eye, right? That's what I'm saying. But this is actually a Hebrew word that speaks of splendor or of excellence. It's, it's really speaking of the majesty of something. And she would be that way too, okay? But this is really speaking of of a kingly office. So he's saying this, is the, you're, this, this king is going to be majestic. He's going to be glorious. Turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 11. You can see this again in Isaiah chapter 11, this idea of this sprout that's going to come up. Isaiah chapter 11. If you were to read in Isaiah 10, you would again see this, another picture of God being this lumberjack that comes through and he cuts down all the trees and he burns everything in judgment. In fact, if you just look briefly at Isaiah 10, before we get to Isaiah 11, look at Isaiah 10, 33. It says, Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop, uh, lop the bows with the terrifying power, the great and the great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thicket of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to tear down the whole forest. But then he goes, verse 1, chapter 11. But there shall come forth a shoot. This is a different, actually, Hebrew word than the branch word we saw earlier. This means sapling. It's going to be a sapling that comes up from the stump of Jesse. So a stump is something that's dead. But this sapling will come up from the stump of Jesse. A branch from its roots shall 
bear forth fruit. So there's this sapling that's going to come up, and it's going to come from where? From the, the line, the ancestral line of Jesse. And who was Jesse? Well, he's the father of David, right? So from David's family line is going to come this person in the future, this shoot, this, this king that's going to come up. And it's, it's going to be a branch that bears fruit. And we don't have time to do this this morning, although I'll do this if, uh, if I teach the, today in the Sunday class and just go through and show you just how the New Testament speaks of the branches and the vines and all that. You can look that up yourself if you want to. But it's amazing to think about how Jesus compared himself. Jesus is, is the vine. We are the branches. He brings forth fruit. And so here's a branch that's going to that's gonna spring up and it's going to be like a tree that's going to bring forth fruit. And keep, just keep reading verse in chapter 11, verse 2. Look at verse 2. This person, this branch, this, this one that's going to come, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So here, this is the anointing of this king. So remember, David was anointed with oil and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. When did that happen? That was at his baptism. Remember, the Spirit of God came down, anointed him as the Messiah King. So the Holy Spirit, So look in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom. And here's a description of the character of the, the king. Uh, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it goes on to describe how he's going to be a just judge. And he's, going to, he's going to rule in righteousness. So this branch comes in the power of this Holy Spirit and he's going to have the power of righteous judgment. Now when John the Baptist was preaching, he baptized Jesus and that's when Jesus was anointed king. But remember what John the Baptist's message was about Jesus? What kind of person was he going to be? He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with what? With the Holy Spirit and with fire. And as you understand the New Testament, we understand that Jesus' coming took place in two parts. His first coming was one to be born, to live, and to die as a sacrifice for our sins. And he would offer the Holy Spirit as a gift to us to cleanse us from our sins from those who to those who believe in his death and resurrection. His second coming will be one that will come with judgment and with fire. So what I believe John the Baptist is saying here is like, this, this Jesus, this Messiah is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and there's going to be a day when judgment's coming, he'll baptize you in fire. So go back to Isaiah chapter 4. So who is this new tree that springs forth? Well, he is a promised king of divine and human ancestry. This is very interesting. Look at when it says that he is the branch of the Lord. In other words, his ancestry actually comes from the Lord, from Yahweh. This speaks of his divine ancestry, but also his ancestry is earthly. It says in verse 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, this is a poem. This was written probably, I think it was probably written as something that could be remembered when the Jewish people were in exile and they could remember this hope. Maybe they even sung this, uh, this, this poem right here. But in Jewish literature, in Jewish poetry, many times in their poetry they had parallelism where they would have one word and they would say, the same word, they say the same idea, but with a different word. And you can kind of see that there in verse 2. The branch of the Lord is paralleled with the fruit of the land. So the branch of the Lord is a title for the Messiah. 
And the fruit of the land is a title for the Messiah. So the branch of the Lord identifies the Messiah's divine ancestry, and the fruit of the land identifies, or the fruit of the earth, identifies his earthly human lineage. And there's some people that disagree on that. They have some different ideas on that, but that's some conclusions I came to on that. That this is actually speaking of the fact that this prophet, or sorry, this king, would have ancestry that was both divine and also of human origin. And so when we go to the New Testament, we look at Jesus Christ, what do we see? We see that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived, I should say, of the Holy Spirit through a human Mary. So what is this? who is this branch? He's a king. And then what does he do? Now, we don't have time to really go through um, Isaiah chapter 4 and really um, understand this entire text. But we're just going to look through it real quick and see some of the things that he does. What does he do? Well, I think what this text is saying is that he restores. Really, he, he restores what was lost in Eden. What was lost in Eden? Well, people sinned. So they lost Adam and Eve sinned. So they lost their holiness. What was lost? Fellowship with God was lost. A curse was put on the earth. So, so the rule of God was what the rule of God was rejected by the people of God, and the earth was cursed. So there was a lot of pain. And there'll be a day when God will reverse all that through His King Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So look at verse three. He says, "And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy." Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So this king actually can change the sinful nature of people to be holy. He, he can restore personal holiness. In fact, he actually can guarantee them permanent residence in the family of God. And that's what he says there. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. What's this talking about? Well, in Jerusalem, there were books of the family ancestry. You could actually go and, and trace your family ancestry. Have anyone done that? You like took a blood test or something like that or maybe gone to Salt Lake City and, right, and looked at your family ancestry there or maybe just went online or whatever it is. You ever done that kind of thing? Well, this was a very serious thing for them. And then, honestly, it helped them know that they fit within this family and they're part of this, this, uh, this tribe of Israel and they could trace their ancestry what this is talking about is the ancestry of Yahweh, of, of God, the, being the family of God. And so he's saying, listen, everyone who is made holy by the Lord, by Messiah, is recorded in this book for life, the book of life. So, and how are they made holy? How are they placed in this family? Look at verse 4. When the Lord sh shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And so the Yahweh is the one who washes away their sin. And again, this, I'm not going to be able to get into the details of this, because I think there's actually, this is speaking of the time of judgment, the second coming when Jesus Christ comes, and he judges and he purifies the earth of, of sin and of, of sinners. But what we see here is that he's the one who washes the daughters of Zion. He's the one who, who purifies those from sin. And look at verse five. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of, site of Mount Zion, I believe this is speaking of the millennial kingdom, and this is the time when Jesus reigns and rules on the earth, over her assemblies, a cloud by day, and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. And here's the picture of God's presence, of Christ dwelling with his people. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy, and there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm. In the rain. And the idea here is that God will fellowship with his people. 
what's restored here? It's the fellowship of God with his people. And again, who are these people he's talking about? I think specifically he's talking about national Israel. He's talking about Jewish people in the future. This will take place during the millennial reign of Christ. God still has a future for Israel. But what's amazing to see in the New Testament is that God says us as Gentiles, unless you're a Jew here, us as Gentiles, we are grafted into this tree, into the family of God, into this tree. We too can be made, made holy by Jesus the Messiah. We can have fellowship with God. We too can live with Jesus as our king in this restored creation that God has for us. So who is this king? He's of divine and human ancestry, and he's one who makes holy, who guarantees a place into his family. He offers fellowship. So what I want to do is just quickly just buzz through a couple of texts and show you how Jesus fulfilled this. So you go to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. What's amazing to see, if you go through the, particularly the Christmas stories, you see this idea that Jesus comes from the line of David. That Jesus is the one who sits on David's throne. So Luke chapter 1, look, I'm not going to read all this, but look at verse 26. So Luke 1, 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So he was sent to this virgin, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So Joseph's lineage was what? Was of the house of David. Remember, Jesus had no biological tie to Joseph, but he did grow up in a Davidic home, and that was important to them. Look down in verse 32. The angel Gabriel appears, uh, Luke 1, 32, and says, he will be great. Speaking of this baby that's going to be born to her by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So this is a reference to his divine ancestry. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, when Justin read earlier those texts, you notice David was promised that his throne would last forever. He would, that his line would go forever. How is that possible? Well, Jesus was the fulfillment of that. His kingdom would have no end. And so Mary is listening to this, and she, if she was familiar with the Old Testament, which it sounds like she was when we read her song that she had there in Luke chapter 2, that she would have remembered that there was this promised one that was going to come, and she was going to have, this baby was going to be the Messiah. So look down in chapter 2, verse 4. Again, you see this thread of this idea of David, the throne of David. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David. So there's Bethlehem, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and he was of the lineage of David. So he keeps highlighting this. Like, this isn't a very important fact here. We need to remember. Look down in verse 11. The angels say, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So who is this baby to be born? Well, he's the king from the ancestral line of David. He's also of, of divine uh, ancestry. And what did he come to do? He came to save people from their sins, just like was, that was said back in Isaiah chapter 4. Now go to Matthew chapter 1. 
And this will we'll conclude here in this text. We're skipping on a lot of passages this morning, but I think it's good for you to see this. And actually, kind of a, a neat thing to see this, and also hopefully something that will give us much hope in our Lord Jesus. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, again, I'm not going to read through all this, but if you read through, read through the first number of verses there, you actually see a family tree, an ancestral tree there. And look down in Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. Remember how I said at the very beginning of the sermon, remember these, these kings' names. We're going to see them again. Well, here we see them. And this is speaking of the line, the, the royal line of, of David. And so Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And it goes on and speaks about those kings that were alive and ruled in the day of Isaiah. And then you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, and it concludes saying that Jacob, the father of Joseph, now there's Joseph, who was the stepfather of Jesus, the husband of Mary, who was the biological mother of Jesus, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, or we could say Messiah, or we could say King, is another way to say that. And then look at verse 20. An angel spoke to Joseph in verse 20. The Bible says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Joseph, in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So you notice how he keeps highlighting that, son of David, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So she's going to have a baby He's going to be king and he will be savior. And his purpose for coming is to save his people from their sins. And the point is this. As you look through these Christmas stories, what you'll see through these Christmas stories is that these people grabbed this hope that Isaiah threw out 700 years before. A hope that a baby would be born, a king. And this king wouldn't just rule. He'd be one who would save them. And particularly, Jesus came to save them from their sins. And this hope for what I'm calling a Christmas tree is actually a hope for us as well. In his first coming, he came to live and die and be resurrected to provide forgiveness for all who believe. And the amazing thing for us is that God promises that we as Gentiles can be grafted into this family of God by just believing. Think back to that, that man, that Deal Moody witnessed to and gave the gospel to. And here's a man who did nothing to deserve to go to heaven, nothing to deserve to be in God's presence, but he was granted access into the family of God, into the presence of God, the forgiveness of God. And why? Because he believed in Jesus. He believed in Jesus Christ as his Savior and his Lord. And so we celebrate Christmas as that, that time when Jesus came as a baby to offer hope to us. The Bible teaches, though, there's a second coming of Jesus. And one thing that's interesting, I'll just put this on the screen up here. The very end of your Bibles, if you read Revelation chapter 22, Jesus is speaking, and he says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I, Jesus, am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And what's amazing to think about is Jesus, he highlights this as an important fact. Why is it an important fact? He's saying, I'm coming again. And what's his second coming going to be like? Well, he's going to reign as that king. And that king is going to be righteous. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to bring righteous judgment upon those who have not 
believed in him. And so I guess my first point of application for us is to think about this. If you're without Christ, you are going to face this judgment. Judgment is coming to our world, to those without Christ, and that's going to come at a second coming. But if you have Christ, we have hope. We have hope that our king isn't just going to judge righteously, but we have a hope that our king is going to allow us to enter into his presence because he faced the judgment for us. One of the greatest things he says also at the end of verse of Revelation 22 is he says, come. He says, come to me. And that's the invitation of the Lord to come to him. And I don't know who I'm talking to online. Of course, in here, I pretty much know everyone in here. But if you're without Christ, the invitation Christ has is to come. We don't know when his second coming is going to be. I don't know about you, but honestly, I get these feelings that it's like, it's got to be soon. (laughs) You see what's going on in our world, right? You see everything kind of lining up in the world according to what the Bible says in prophecy. We don't know what that time would be. The Bible says that there's not possible for us to know until it happens, but it will come like a thief in the night. It will come when we least expect it. And we, we plead, Lord, please come. And our hope is found in him. Would you bow with me in prayer? I always want to, at the end of my sermons, to give an offer to those who are without Christ to turn to him. Maybe the Lord's working in your heart. I call to you. The Lord calls to you and says, please turn to him now. And right where you're sitting or right where you're at home, wherever you're at, you can turn to the Lord in faith. And for us Christians, we can, again, like I said at the beginning of my sermon, we can get beaten down by this world, but we shouldn't. Our king is the king of kings. And we have hope that he will do, he's doing what he wants done and he will do what he promises he's going to do. And that is allow us to enter into his presence. Let's pray. What a wonderful time of year, Lord, to celebrate. Many people are celebrating gifts and things, even family. Necessarily isn't bad to enjoy those things. But Lord, we celebrate you. We celebrate what you've done for us. Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for your perfect life of obedience. Thank you for your sacrifice in our place. Thank you for the resurrection. And now you're at the right hand of the Father. You're interceding for us. And thank you for the hope that we have that you will soon come. It could be today. And Lord, that is our desire. That is our hope. We we groan. Our world groans under the turmoil of wickedness and under the chafing of the, 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 the sinfulness of this world. And our hearts long for your presence. Our hearts long for your glory. Our hearts long to be with you. Our hearts long to see some people that we love who are with you now. But most importantly, our hearts long, Jesus Christ, to worship you. And so I pray, Lord, please come quickly. Please come and redeem this world. Restore what you have promised to restore But God, I pray for those maybe listening to me right now that don't know you. God, I pray, work in their hearts. Work in the hearts of our children. Help them to come to that confidence that they know you as their Savior. Work in the hearts of those who are our friends and our neighbors, some who we're going to be seeing over the next couple weeks. Lord, I pray that you'll use us to, to share the gospel with them, the gospel hope that Jesus is our Savior. He's our Lord, and he is the King. And God, may we, may we shake in holy fear recognizing that you, Lord, will come in judgment. 
And may we trust that our, our souls, our lives are hidden in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.